The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Will you ever get enough digital subscriptions and digital advertising? I I hadn't seen anybody with a solution yet, and I was actually debating getting out of journalism. There's nothing that requires a newspaper to survive. There's nothing that ensures that you will get the news that you need. People have to make conscious choices. After devouring newspaper publisher Tribune Corp, hedge fund Alden Global now wants Lee Enterprises, parent of several Virginia newspapers, including Richmond's Times-Dispatch, Charlottesville's Daily Progress, and the Roanoke Times. These titles are united in their opposition to being owned by a financial sponsor known for cutting muscle and bone. Can they prevail? Is there a better way? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Joining me from downtown Richmond is Robert Zulo. He is the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury, which launched in 2018 to, quote, bring a fresh perspective to coverage of Virginia's biggest political and policy issues, filling the gaps in reporting created by a shrinking media industry. Uh, Robert was previously at the Richmond Times-Dispatch on his second tour of duty. Uh, that I think back then it was still owned by Warren Buffett, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah, it was. Uh, I had actually been there when Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway purchased the Times-Dispatch in 2012. And it, at the time, it was pretty optimistic uh, outlook in the newsroom, you know, based on the prior experience with Media General owning the papers. And by the time I came, I left to go work for the Post-Gazette in Pittsburgh for a few years. By the time I came back, a lot of that optimism about Berkshire Hathaway had faded a good <laughs> good bit. Well, I thought it was an inflection point for the newspaper industry because here you have the key long-term investor, the most famous investor in the world, Warren Buffett. I think he's worth something north of 80 or $85 billion right now. And uh, to quote Neiman and the Columbia Journalism Review, newspapers can't be that terrible of a business if Warren Buffett, the smartest investor in the world, wants in. I mean, it was he paid cash, right, for $142 million for 63 newspapers from the old Media General, the parent of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And then he spit it out just a few years later. He said, I think it'll be in better hands. The industry is in to- is toast. I'd like to see Lee Industries run it. Fast forward barely, what, 20 months, and a hedge fund is making a run at Lee, the parent of the Times-Dispatch and several other papers. Yeah. And I think, you know, to their credit, at least from, you know, what I've been reading and I you know obviously I'm not you know in the middle of this anymore like when I you know w- when we all when I sat in a newspaper newsroom and but it does look like Leeds their credit is kind of resisting uh this takeover bid uh, the latest headline I saw about it was that Alden is actually suing Lee over their turning them down uh initially so I will say that you know one thing about leaving the newspaper business that I didn't think about while I was in it is how much the external pressures of the business model, the declines in revenue, the shrinking circulation, all that stuff weighs on you, even when you're just a reporter in the newsroom, because you see your bosses going into hush meetings and you're, you know, you're just wondering, you're just waiting for another shoe to fall. And uh, to be free of that is really nice over the past three years. And uh, I obviously have become, you know, very much in favor of the nonprofit model. And I think it's something more uh, 
you know, newspapers should try and pursue if they can. Well, what was in your head when you decided to decamp and helped found the, the Virginia Mercury? I kind of want to understand this because it's been elusive also, a, a digital native business model that could fund that could fund a newsroom to the extent that the old, you know, uh, full page department store ads and, and car dealership ads, which were kind of the bread and butter of uh, the newspaper industry's golden age, could do. You just don't see that right now. You have you have nickels and dimes in place of of dollars. Yeah, well, we I mean we don't really have a, a business model per se, and that you know we we are a, a nation part of a nationwide nonprofit organization called States Newsroom that has similar outlets. Uh, in more than two dozen states now, and they they will be expanding to others. They're very they're small newsrooms, so we're uh, we're a total of you know five full time people, in addition to support from freelancers and some uh, op ed columnists and guest columnists. But what was in my head as I was leaving the new? I just spent thirteen years at newspapers. I was in four states, you know, Louisiana, New Jersey, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and I had just realized that no matter where I went, no matter which whether I was part of a big chain, whether I was part of a smaller, you know, family-owned organization like the Post-Gazette and the Toledo Blade were, that no one really seemed to have an answer <laughs> for the big question, which was how do you make these things sustainable? How do you bridge, you know, the divide between what the legacy source of money was, which was the print edition, like you mentioned, the big display ads and classified advertising into the new, you know, digital world? And, you know, will you ever will you ever get enough digital subscriptions and digital advertising, you know, to make these things sustainable? And I just had arrived at the, you know, the personal conviction that I, I hadn't seen anybody with a solution yet. And I was actually debating getting out of journalism uh, when my wife came across the listing for what became the Virginia Mercury. And I applied and, you know, three years later, we're, we're doing pretty well, I, I would say. I'd like to quote from the unions of Lee Enterprises who wrote to the board of directors of the the uh, you know, still one of the top newspaper, publicly traded newspaper companies in the country. Uh, and one of the signatories here was the Richmond Times Dispatch. It said, on behalf of the 12 unionized newsrooms of Lee Enterprises and the journalists and newspaper staffers we represent, we implore you to reject any present and future offers made by Alden Global Capital to acquire this company. Alden has cut their staffs at twice the rate of competitors, resulting in the loss of countless jobs. They've fostered unhealthy and untenable workplaces that make it impossible to retain talent. They've shuttered physical newsrooms to leave journalists working from their cars, and at properties they lease, Alden stiffs local landlords for the rent. Their investment history is littered with bankruptcies and federal probes, and they use secretive money to fund their shady dealings. They are not good stewards of their investments. They do not even try to run a sustainable news company. Uh you know, this is this is very interesting in that Alden had already owned a six percent stake, uh, kind of a passive stake in Lee, and just out of the blue came in with this what's kind of a take it or leave it hostile bid. And what this has done interestingly is is uh, had you know Lee's management and his newsroom is kind of allied against this this Wall Street force coming after it. Well, it's easy to see why. I th I think it was. Um... You know, there was the big story in the Atlantic. Uh, yes, the cover story, you know, kind of exposing them. Before that, I think it was Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post who compared them to a strip mining operation. I mean, it's a very simple model. You know, th these newspapers still have assets. They still, you know, unbelievably are capable of turning a profit if you don't care <laughs> about, you know, cutting the staff to, you know, just the the barest minimums, and you don't care about journalism. You don't care about, you know, providing a product anymore or a good product 
you know, they, generally what they do is they come in, they sell off real estate, they lay off everybody, they jack up subscription rates. And then, you know, when the, when the thing craters, they fold it up. So uh, yeah, it's easy to see why someone who is working at a newspaper would not want to uh, come under Alden's ownership. Yeah, I'd like to note how important this is to Virginia. Lee Enterprises, which is based in Davenport, Iowa, owns 10 daily newspapers in Virginia, including, yes, clearly the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Roanoke Times, and uh, the Freelance Star in Fredericksburg. Uh, The company also owns papers in Charlottesville, Bristol, Danville, Martinsville, Lynchburg, Waynesboro, Culpeper, Rockmount, and Wytheville. You know, 75 daily newspapers for the company in 26 states, including Virginia. But Virginia certainly feels like a a firewall at this point because earlier, uh, as you and I know, Alden successfully acquired Tribune Publishing, the the Colossus, which got it the Norfolk Virginian Pilot and the Newport News Daily Press, and in Richmond, even Style Weekly, the Alt Weekly, which was shuttered by them. So it seems to disproportionately hit this state where Lee had a massive concentration of investments. Yeah, and I th- I think that might just be because you know the quirks of you know what happened with you know Lee being able to buy you know the papers from. Berkshire Hathaway, which bought them from Media General, which was, you know, basically started as a company by the owner, former owner, the Bryan family, the owners, uh, uh, longtime owners, of the Times Dispatch. So they it, they're kind of like the last, <laughs> the last things that you know that Alden hasn't been able to to get so far. But I I mean I think you can see you have a great example of what happened with the pilot, uh, you know, which was very an incredibly well regarded paper for so much of its history and you just see the exodus of talent they sold their you know their longtime building in downtown norfolk and i think they moved their offices to newport news if i'm if i'm remembering that correctly where the daily press has been but you have this real world example of you know what happens when when this kind of you know rapacious head fund takes over a newspaper uh and you know the last thing on their minds is providing good journalism to the community they're supposed to serve Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Robert Zullo. He is editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury, which was founded, what, in 2018 after your second tour of duty at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. You're joined there by Ned Oliver. I remember one of your first hires. He was also a a, a byline that I remember from the Richmond Times-Dispatch and, and Style Weekly. Uh, tell me how it works when you... I mean, it, it must be an interesting position, not that I'm calling you a vulture or anything, but you can pick off any reporter you want. It must be a buyer's market when a hedge fund comes in and offers kind of blanket buyouts to everyone at Papers the way Alden has at at Tribune and the other publications it has purchased. Are you able to expand? Are you able to turn back to, you know, the owner state's newsroom, which again is a nonprofit and say, look, this is really an opportunity for us to pick up talent and name recognition where others are are kind of shedding it? Well, yes and no. You know, the good and the bad of our model is we can employ as big a staff as we can raise money to support. So, you know, we have we have big donors that are listed on the state's newsroom website who support the overall operation. If we want to grow beyond that, we've got to kind of raise our own money in Virginia and uh, from elsewhere. And that's kind of the the footing we're in right now is trying to figure out, you know, what's a what's a good size for us to be? How much money do we need? to get there and to kind of begin the campaign, you know, to do that. You know, it's very similar. I know you have a background in public radio and it's very similar to the, 
you know, the drives right. that public radio will do. And obviously, you know, good, a good uh, uh, silver lining and kind of the Alden uh, Tribune thing is that VPM was able to rescue Style Weekly and is bringing it back. I mean, I, I, I vividly remember when I first moved, I went to William & Mary and moved to Richmond after college, not knowing what I wanted to do and picked up Style Weekly. And it was just, you know, it just was such a great publication that kind of helped explain the city to me and, you know, gave me a lot of perspective. On yes. And I, arts, I, I have, I have written, like, I have written for it and I picked it up and it was a critical for those, you know, listening outside of Richmond and Virginia style weekly was that kind of essential alt weekly in Richmond, Virginia that kept, you know, the things that the Richmond times dispatch didn't or wouldn't want to cover style weekly kind of ventured into that muck and it was critical. And, uh, you know, when tribune, the parent company acquired uh, Style Weekly's parent company, and then Alden, this same hedge fund, acquired Tribune, just kind of unceremoniously shut down the place a few months ago. I can't imagine that something that was viable and had ads and a skeletal staff was worth more dead than alive. Yeah, I, I you know, obviously I don't know what the, the financials were there, but I'm just glad to see that it's being resurrected in some form and that you know, that they'll continue to provide arts and culture and dining coverage, you know, all the things that, that make it great to live in the Richmond area. And, you know, somebody needs to be covering that. Well, Robert, what about uh, the opportunity for you guys? When you go back and you talk to your investors and the others, is it is there an opportunity here? Suppose Alden is successful. Suppose, you know, you have these lawsuits back and forth and, and ultimately maybe they up the bid. What are you going to do? Lee Enterprises is a publicly traded company. They took a, a poison pill to try to defer or defray from this there might be a white knight suitor that comes in and offers to buy say the richmond times dispatch or someone else but what is the you know if you have to turn around and make a case to investors outside of the kind of the patriotic civic case of rescuing journalism for the state of democracy and monitoring corruption in city hall and whatnot is there a cold-eyed case to make that look this is still a profitable business this is one where you know, you might get a return on your investment that's north of what you might get in a money market account. You know, is there is there anything to that, or have we already kind of moved past this where it's not for profit or bust? Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think it really it, it it comes down, I think, in the internet age to identifying who your audience is, are they willing to pay, and are you willing to, you know, re-engineer your organization to maximize delivering the kind of content that people want people want to pay for. And you know, I the example I would use is the athletic, you know, what the athletic made a model of basically hiring away the best sports writers from the legacy publications. You and I are both uh, Miami sports fans. So um, I don't know if you subscribe to the athletic, but I do and I follow the Miami coverage of, you know, the hurricanes and the dolphins and so, and I think that, that that is a subscription model and, you know, they've been around for, I'm not sure actually, but a number of years now. And, uh, you know, they've gone, I think they've had some tribulations too, some, you know, right, right sizing and downsizing their staff, but it, they do seem to be a successful model. Does that translate to the kind of work we do, which is enterprise coverage of state government and politics? I'm not sure. I think business publications have been successful uh, in, you know, cultivating a subscriber base and figuring out a sustainable way forward. I don't know if the general interest newspaper, which, you know, in the past aspired to be, you know, all things to all different types of readers and all the different sections, you know, everything from recipes and uh, features to, you know, business to sports to local news to state news. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, and I think that there is a 
I think that there's a way forward for specialty publications like us. We have done pretty well. We have a large number of people that give anywhere from, you know, five, $5 a month, $2 a month to, uh, you know, bigger donations in the hundreds and a couple thousand dollars. Sometimes we get out of the blue. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a very tough business because I do think there's a certain expectation nowadays that, you know, news should be, news should be free and people will kind of gravitate towards the free sources, even if they're not. Is there that expectation though anymore? I know it's not an apples to apples comparison necessarily, but the New York Times has successfully gotten people to log in. I don't think that it laments its massive uh, print advertising declines every quarter now that it's just been adding digital subscribers, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, to a lesser extent, the Los Angeles Times. And yes, a lot of these papers are backstopped by billionaires, but we are in a subscriber economy. I mean, I do pay for a Netflix subscription. I do pay for a New York Times subscription. I pay for a Spotify subscription. And and you've seen Politico and the likes with kind of narrower verticals, be it, you know, Beltway newsletters or Axios or the other ones, or even Richmond BizSense. If you're someone in the city of Richmond and you care a lot about a real estate newsletter or commercial property dispatch, you're willing to pay for that kind of narrow curated uh, information. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I guess what I was saying is I'm not sure if that's there for the Metro Daily, you know, uh, that, that, and as far as the Times and the Post, these papers with big, big brands and nationwide international reach, to be honest, and they saw a big boom during the Trump years. I think the jury will be the jury's still out on whether that subscriber growth will continue, you know, with Trump out of office. But we'll see. Uh, I just know that what for what we do, we've we've found a good uh, niche and it works for us. And our we it seems like our coverage is uh, useful to people. Uh, we help explain state government and politics uh, uh, and you know policy debates. And I think we've found a kind of a good spot for us. And as far as what a growth model and you know what the right size for us to be, that's still kind of to to be determined. Robert, game this out for us. Suppose Alden does prevail in uh, resting away Lee and continues with its game plan of they call it right sizing, but gutting newsrooms, selling off property, and everything. Are you in a position? Have you discussed this contingency with your investors, with your board, to? go in and, and expand into other cities in Virginia or other verticals? I mean, th- does this model scale, the not-for-profit model? Well, I think it does. I think it does. And, uh, you know, I won't, uh, you know, I, I, to answer your question, no, I haven't had those, you know, discussions yet. Uh, but I will point you towards Cardinal News, uh, which just began in Southwest Virginia covering Southside and uh, Southwest Virginia. They're going to be, uh, I just saw on their website today, they're hiring a reporter to cover Danville. So, a lot of those people are ex Roanoke Times people, which is a another uh, Lee property that has gone through a considerable bit of downsizing. It's, I mean, I don't think I'm talking out of school to say it's a shell of what it once was. I mean, the Roanoke Times was one of at one point one of the most respected papers in Virginia, um, and they just you know I think the people there are still trying hard, but when you're down to such a skeleton staff, it's really tough. And I think that you know they've. They are a small nonprofit regional news organization, and you know they. I think they've just started, basically, in the past within the past six months. I'm not sure of the exact date, but it appears to me they're they're producing some really high quality stuff. And I think I think there is a way forward for this model. You know, I think people want to know what's happening in their area, and they're willing to support it. It's just the kind of a 
it's how big an organization is sustainable that way. Robert, I have to ask, you know, the other the other way around is is you saw that Politico, uh, the digital native, the DC coverage portal was uh, announced it was going to be sold last summer to Axel Springer, the German media conglomerate for over a billion dollars. And they are still in the process of expanding. You see them expanding into other cities, much like that uh, athletic model that you talked about earlier, or you've seen ESPN where local newsrooms were gutting their sports pages even. ESPN dropped down into places like Miami or St. Louis and others and embed one or two great reporters and you know give them uh, the national resources hub and spoking out of Connecticut or wherever it is. Do you see this as an opening for the likes of Politico or even our neighbors, the Washington Post or, or others to come in and hire one or two, you know, especially in the era of remote working where you don't have to staff a, a, an actual newsroom to cover a city? It, it could be. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of Axios doing something similar in, in some cities. I th- and I guess it just depends what you're trying to do and where you think the audience is. Um, I think it would be very hard for example, for some for one of those organizations to come in and drop a reporter in Richmond and do what we do, which is tends to be you know more enterprise, a little bit heftier stories, and it also depends who your audience is. So if Politico brings someone into Richmond, for example, who are they writing for? Are they writing for Virginia, uh, you know, a Virginia policy audience, of you know, a Virginia general interest audience? Are they writing for a national audience? You know, I I think that that would be the the question that I would have on that kind of model. I think the I think the one thing that all the the great you know digital disruptions so to speak has uh, taught us all in media is that you know you really need to keep forefront in your mind who your audience is and are you delivering content journalism that's useful for them. True or false that that you know if you take the the ocean food chain metaphor the plankton that you guys all depend on ultimately is. You know, something like the Richmond Times Dispatch, which has city hall reporters and others that gets kind of the raw day to day reporting. And if that is existentially threatened, what happens to everything else in the food chain? Well, that's I mean, I always yeah, I, I always had that uh, that that same thought about newspapers. I mean, most of the things you see reported anywhere started at a, a local newspaper. I do think that that's increasingly not true um, because there just aren't you know, I was a city hall reporter at the Richmond Times Dispatch covering every you know, every committee meeting of the city council and, you know, churning out, you know, one to two, sometimes three stories a day. Um, and I don't see that as much in uh, Metro papers, uh, you know, the kind of daily reporting paper of record type reporting, um, because I just think that they've, you know, they've also kind of shifted a little bit to, you know, the enterprise model, right, right. trying to do, you know, tr- when you have, when your resources are limited, when your staffing is limited, you have to focus on what you think is the most important. We were talking to Robert Zulo. He's editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury, the digital native that was started as a not-for-profit in 2018. He was previously at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He's been at several newspapers throughout his career, including the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And uh, interestingly enough, I always like to quote your, your Renaissance man credentials. You were a former waiter, armored car guard, and appliance delivery man. Uh, so yeah, you've seen it all. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and definitely come back. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and rate us and recommend the show to your friends and family. 
If you are just joining us, we're talking about Virginia versus Alden Global Capital, this hedge fund that's going after its latest trophy acquisition, Lee Enterprises, which has several newspapers in the state of Virginia, uh, including the Richmond Times-Dispatch and the Major Dailies in Roanoke and in Charlottesville. No stranger to this controversy and courtship is David Folkenflik. He is NPR's media correspondent, and he joins us from his home studio. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Great to hear your voice once more, Rob. Uh, I am still amazed, you know, when we look back at the ill-starred past 10, 15 years of Tribune Publishing, which was the once great owner of the Los Angeles Times, clearly the Chicago Tribune, the paper in Baltimore, the South Florida Sun Sentinel, that it was so easy for this hedge fund to come in and take it out. I mean, no poison pill, no amount of kind of civic noblesse oblige in Baltimore or the other surrounding areas were able to stave it off. Well, I think we have to first acknowledge the L.A. Times uh, found its uh, liberty and its salvation in the ownership of uh, billionaire medical entrepreneur, Dr. Uh, Patrick Sunshong, you know, a South African right. immigrant of Chinese descent who felt that this was something he needed to preserve for Los Angeles, uh, his, you know, the, the city in which he's found a home and a base for so many years now. And yet that wasn't possible in the other cities that equally deserved to have great titles survive in a way that could capture the life and texture of their regions, uh, places like the Baltimore Sun, where I spent more than a de decade, places like the sure. Chicago Tribune, the Hartford Current, the papers in Florida, uh, papers in Virginia, in your backyard. And so, you know, this was a, sort of a slow moving tragedy for the folks who worked within a lot of those newsrooms not simply because of their own professional fates and what it would be like to work for the new employers, but because of what they could foresee likely to happen for the people in the communities that they've sought to serve. You know, I talked to folks at so, and we can get more into this in detail, but I talked to folks in so many of those different markets and those different outlets and newsrooms, including in Virginia, and the extreme lengths to which people went and the extraordinary concessions that people made about their own ambitions and compensation simply to have the right to keep reporting the news and presenting it to the public, you know, I think is nothing short of extraordinary. Well, here's what I don't understand. Why is it that just a hedge fund is able to come in? I mean, these are clearly the last of the publicly traded pure play newspaper companies that haven't been taken out of circulation. I mean, Washington Post is owned by a billionaire. You mentioned the Los Angeles Times. It was peeled off by a billionaire. John Henry, I believe, owns the Boston Globe. There are a handful of others that were out there, including McClatchy, owner of the Miami Herald, and others that were bought by hedge funds. But as long as you're publicly traded and your shares can be collected, a player that wants to come in with more draconian ideas, such as you know, slash and burn, sell the real estate, really there isn't much that kind of firewalls you from that. Well, uh, it really depends on the expectations, I think, that corporate owners and m major shareholders in publicly traded companies, you know, the, what they convey to their various uh, shareholders and stakeholders and to the public. That is, if they say as a corporation, we are never going to seek the highest profit margins, we're always going to seek to be in the black, but we also think that this is a corporation with a public interest and it would be against the value of the long-term value of this company for us to go for the highest shock, simply to operate for the highest share prices possible. You know, look, Robin, you're a very veteran business journalist. You, you, you know these things better than I do. But it seems to me that there were companies that did that. Times Mirror was the uh, mm. formerly publicly traded company that had grown out of the Los Angeles Times and its sister paper in Los Angeles. 
It acquired Newsday. It acquired the Baltimore Sun, you know, in the 80s and 90s. It had a, a number of very distinguished papers. It always seemed to have about a 5 to 6%, sometimes 10% lower profit margin than some of its peers, including the high-flying folks over at now defunct Knight Ritter newspaper company. You know, they don't right. all march in lockstep. What you're seeing is that private investors, uh, shielded from a lot of public scrutiny by benefit of not being publicly traded, are seeing what they believe is an opportunity to do a few things. Uh, an opportunity to cut back because they have no real emotional or principled uh, stake in the communities that they serve, and also an opportunity to consolidate and therefore cut back even more dramatically. And that the reason why a place like Alden Global Capital and some of its competitors at uh, Gannett Company, for example, is combined of these two giant chains of Gatehouse and Gannett, and themselves until recently were controlled by Fortress, which was a private investor fund controlled by the huge Japanese conglomerate called SoftBank. Uh, wow. That doesn't strip the paint off the bark too, you know, uh, off the walls too much. You know, these companies saw that scale by by just ha acquiring you know a huge, vast network, effectively of newspaper operations, particularly with clusters in shared geographic areas, so that they could, for example, outsource the printing of the daily papers that were still published to a single printing press rather than having four separate ones. They wanted to find ways to cut, and at a certain point, when you've cut as much as you can in accounting and you standardize all the software and you outsource uh, the printing to ever more distant locations as a way of saving costs and paying fewer people to operate printing presses and just operating the costs of operating the printing press, getting rid of those. At a certain point, the thing that you cut to quickest drop your expenses is you cut the bodies of the men and women who are working, you know, their jobs eliminate those and you eliminate a lot of costs. It's expensive to report news. It's awfully cheap to pay some, you know, even well-paid person to pontificate about something. It's a lot more expensive to spend money to have, you know, a city room desk of 25, 35, 45 people to go out and actually report the news. And in some of these newspapers, even serving some decent sized cities, you might have, you know, eight or three people left to cover the news. And it's barely covering. It's just scrambling to try to put something out there. Well, the misalignment here is that in business school, they will teach you that, you know, that, that the gospel is that private equity and hedge funds, financial sponsors can come into seemingly doomed companies, let's say a light bulb manufacturer or a typewriter company, and manage the decline, you know, cut redundancies, pair things together, bring in back office capabilities. What I can understand and what I struggle with, and I'm sure you read too the Atlantic uh, cover on Alden Global, which was by McKay Coppins, is how uh, there's just this you know whistling in the air while you cut the core product, which is reporting and journalists. That's not the fungible part. It's not like you can you know shift to a different provider. You can only bring in newswire copy from AP and Bloomberg as much as possible before your readers recognize that you don't really have anybody covering this place locally anymore. I mean, think of what you just said. You know, the best case scenario of what you said is that they would intelligently and thoughtfully manage decline. But there's no sense of investing in the product. There's no sense in experimentation. There's no sense in a little running room to figure out things that might allow the news to endure, to survive, even to thrive as a product through thinking about it, marketing it, presenting it, envisioning it. However, doing it differently or just more intelligently, because people have a chance to breathe, people have a chance to think, and people have a chance to perform and occasionally get it wrong. 
you know, there's none of that is part of the conversation. The conversation here is, you know, newspapers are on a downward trend. Uh, nobody seems to want these properties for the kind of prices that the self-regarding uh, journalists would like them to go for. And what's more, you know, these are just vanity plays from a bunch of billionaires in the markets where people have taken it over, like the ones you mentioned, like John Henry at Boston Globe and others. And therefore, this is what makes sense. This is what society is telling us we need. Now, let's be clear. There are societal shifts in how we gain information, how we absorb it, how we transmit it, how we share it. Social media platforms, the digital revolution. None of this is news to you or your listeners who experience it every day around them, even if consciously or unconsciously. And there is a concomitant at times unwillingness to pay. Why am I paying for this when I can go to Yahoo News, you know, or my homepage or whatever, or just scroll through Twitter and get an extraordinary amount of information for free? The reality is, of course, we're all paying for this information. We're just changing who we're paying it for it. So we're paying either, or usually we're paying all of the following, we're paying our broadband companies for uh, you know, the bytes and digits that come across right, our, right. our laptops and iPads. We're paying our cell phone companies so that we can doom scroll. We're paying Facebook with our attention and eyeballs so that they can present us with ads and clicks and links to things that people want to put in front of us, uh, whether for commercial or ideological reasons. So we're paying for it. We're just not paying for the people who are producing the kind of content that still is the, you know, the heart and lifeblood of our civic understanding of ourselves when it's done right. And there is a way in which you've seen in places like Minneapolis, I believe Glenn Taylor is the uh, business magnate there who said, you know, the Star uh, Tribune is worth preserving. It's important that the Twin Cities in Minnesota still have a great publication worth the name. And no, it's not as big as it once was. But you know what? It's a lot bigger than it would otherwise be. And in Boston, uh, you know, you have a guy who's a hedge fund, I believe, billionaire, 100 millionaire for sure, mm -hmm. who has spent a lot of time and effort, he and his wife, in making sure that the Boston Globe is, is viable. And it's a lot smaller than it once was. It doesn't have the great foreign bureaus it once did. But my God, do they do sophisticated and smart work. And I think they're really trying hard. And that's what I feel uh, you know, I don't like the idea that everybody should just say, well, who's our billionaire who can save us? But, you know, there are people, there's money out there and there are mm. people out there who are trying to find ways to do things. In Chicago, it was an extraordinary, I think, failure of leadership, uh, failure of imagination and disappointment that people did not come forward as the Tribune chain uh, was being sold ultimately to Alden in sort of a slow motion uh, you know, catastrophe from the standpoint of most of their newsrooms, that people didn't come forward in the civic realm in the way they did in Maryland and in Baltimore. Well, in what, what did you what did you hear behind the scenes? That's what I'm very curious about. And I know this is a little inside baseball, but again, this fabled billionaire, uh, you know, good guy owner that's going to prevent the place from turning into Pottersville. Did they just blanch at the economics? I mean, when the bankers tell them, well, in order just even to have a 7% cash flow margin, let's just take that number after, out of thin air. You'd have to bring down costs by this much. And then the billionaire, of course, would not want to have his or her name on that kind of, of activity. Well, I don't think that's quite how it played out in this case. You had a guy named Stuart Bainham in Maryland who stepped forward and he made a ton of money on development of elder care centers and hotels and other things. Split his time, I think, between California and Maryland, a former state politician, you know, state legislator in Annapolis who said, you know, I want to help the Baltimore Sun. If I can find like-minded people, we can band together and buy these other elements, just as the Los Angeles Times was bought a couple of years earlier by Sunshong out there. And, you know, he did find people in, for example, the two main markets in Florida, 
Uh, there seemed to be some interest in Allentown, you know, uh, call it an hour, hour and a half away from Philly. There seemed to be some interest in Hartford. Bainham couldn't quite get all of the things to work, but with the partners in Florida, he was going to swing not just $100 million of his own money, but he was going to be willing to pay $200 million to make sure everything worked. He just needed a figure to come forward in Chicago to pay about $100 million, and he would have had a pretty viable offer. Yes, they would have had to finance some of the rest of it, but, you know, let's be clear, Alden Global reserved the right to finance a significant chunk of what it did. And what was interesting, Hans-Jörg Wies was this uh, billionaire and philanthropist who came forward. Two things apparently happened, one of which was it was said that he wanted to turn the Chicago Tribune into more of a national or borderless publication like the Washington Post. And it turned out that the Chicago Tribune wasn't staffed to do that and wasn't, you know, didn't have the branding to do that in the way that the Washington Post, although it had been in effect a huge metro daily that happened to be in the nation's federal city, the very fact of it being in the nation's capital meant that it was sort of by default a national brand and did have, you know, so many foreign bureaus as to be an international thing. And therefore, they were able to build this digital national and international play for English speaking readers uh, with the metrics insight of its new owner, Jeff Bezos, of course, the founder of Amazon, and was able to do something Chicago wouldn't. That is the claim about Hans-Jörg Wies. The other thing was that he got some very severe scrutiny from the New York Times about some of his ventures with uh, liberal websites that were more political in nature. And there was some controversy around some of those sites. And he just pulled back fairly instantaneously after that point. I can't tell you which, if not both of those elements came into play, but it wasn't that there was no money that could be made over breaking even. So, you know, Bainham needed some partners. They didn't come forward. I was surprised that major you know, there's so much corporate money in Chicago, uh, you know, Boeing and other players. But, to, so but many to, extrapo- there. to extrapolate from that, when you get down to it, uh, that unthinkable back in the day that you could have had the Chicago Tribune for $100 million. We don't know about the assumption of debt and other liabilities. Yeah, that's right. But even then, they were not able to arrange that. And these guys had to genuflect before the, the hedge fund, the crown jewel of the Tribune empire. This, there was no alternative. There was no other way to arrange it. To, to the best of your idea, uh, uh, knowledge, I mean, these papers are still profitable, right? Yeah. So I obtained some audio, which we played on, on the air in one of my stories, in which the then chief content officer, a funny term for a newspaper, but chief content officer for Tribune at the time, uh, Colin McMahon, who was simultaneously the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Tribune and said to be somebody who really did care about the quality of journalism there, said, listen, It's going to be a new day when Alden Global buys us. They have made it clear that they want us, you know, to have about 20 to 22 percent profit margins. At that time, the profit margin of the Chicago Tribune was 13 percent. Now that for a lot of industries, that's pretty high, but they wanted it to be 22 percent. They wanted them to almost double their profit margin. You know, well, you don't do that without cutting bodies. You don't do that with taking a, you know, without taking a hacksaw to your newsroom. And that was, you know, something that set off shockwaves within the newsroom there. The, the other thing I wanted to point out about Chicago was that there was an inventiveness at play, and it may have forestalled the willingness of foundations or others to come forward and try to figure out a way to construct a new future for the Chicago Tribune, because not super long after that, last fall, the head of Chicago public media, WBEZ, announced a deal that he had struck with the help of foundations and civic leaders locally to take over the Chicago Sun-Times. And that uh, he made clear they weren't going to cut anybody 
or any positions that they were going to, if anything, put more money into building Mm. a unified newsroom that would serve readers digitally uh, online, continue the print product of the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper, and and also get some of that reporting on BEZ's airwaves. And I think that's a real hope. I'm not saying it's a replica model everywhere, but I'm saying that's a hope for a new way for Chicago to strengthen its news ecosystem at a time when that second newspaper, a rare thing, even in a city the size of Chicago, that second newspaper was ailing. This ensured that sometimes should have a new lease on life, at least for a while, and gives them the chance to experiment and do the kinds of things that Alden's budgeting doesn't really allow people to do. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to David Folkenflik. He is the media correspondent at NPR. We're talking about Alden Global, the, the hedge fund, the acquisitive hedge fund's latest bauble of desire, which is Lee Enterprises, which owns several dozen newspapers, including more than 10 in the state of Virginia. I have to ask you, you know, citing this uh, piece uh, that uh, Jack Schaefer wrote in Politico, uh, wow, it's just stunning to see it. Weekday newspaper circulation has plummeted from about 56 million households to about 29 million in the past two decades. More than 2,000 newspapers have vanished since 2004, most of them weeklies, creating what some call news deserts. And revenues have just about halved in the past decade, as has newsroom size making it harder to report local news. And a more recent Pew survey found that only 14% respondents had paid for local news in the previous year. Uh, Is the best case scenario, I mean, in in your experience, in your reporting, some mix of, I don't know, noblesse oblige and and the not-for-profit model, the the idea that if we don't bring in uh, different players here who have kind of a public trust-mindedness, that uh, this is going to necessarily fall to the lowest common denominator where we're pulling out the copper pipes and selling the furniture and slashing payroll. You know, there's nothing that requires a newspaper to survive. There's nothing that ensures that you will get the news that you need. People have to make conscious choices all the time to ensure that they have credible, consistent, and reliable sources of the information they need to make good choices, not just as consumers, but as citizens. And that's at the root of all of this. It's why, and we're not, to my knowledge, in Pledge Week, but it's why things like public radio are so important, because it is reliable. It has multiple sources of revenue that are, on the whole, fairly consistent and help these institutions weather tough times, even amid all the change that's happening. NPR and a lot of its member stations are providing consistent and often vital coverage. In local communities, most public radio stations aren't staffed to the level that they can be the primary source of information around. Newspapers have historically kind of provided the horsepower that fueled the engines of reliable information and news in communities. And, you know, without them, we will be poor for it. I am not completely agnostic about the value of, you know, something else being as good. You know, in Baltimore, they're creating the Baltimore banner. And that's going to be a newsroom that I think they 
are start going to start with something like 40 or 50 journalists and they hope to build up to 75 to 100. That's going to be a major news source for Baltimore and the state of Maryland. And they're hiring a lot of experienced and smart people at, out of the gate. And I'm hopeful for them. So they could be just as good or better than what the newspaper there offers. But, you know, people have to make conscious choices if they believe in a news source as credible and as valuable in covering, you know, local schools or covering state legislature or covering anything that that affects the lives of their communities in a, in a way that is valuable, then probably that's a place they should support with their money somehow, whether if they own small businesses with advertisements or as subscribers. You know, it's now, not- I, I don't want to I don't want to sound mercenary, but if this were to continue, for example, if Alden were to get its way and consolidate Lee with Tribune and everything else that it has, and you've seen other newspapers such as McClatchy already hedge fund owned. Uh, there is a continuation of the have lots, such as the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, and the the have have nots have a lot lesses, including these papers that are being rolled up together. Do you see an opportunity for the digital natives? I think about Politico, which sold for about a billion dollars to a German publisher, which doesn't have printing presses to worry about. I think about Axios and others that are maybe venture capital finance to be able to swoop into news deserts and say, look, you have all of these orphaned uh, bylines. I could just uh, you know, append them to staff and create virtual bureaus. I'd be fine with that. I'd be delighted by that in many ways. But you know, I would question how are they going to cover it and for whom are they going to cover it? But you know, Politico made a lot of promises about establishing significant presences in, I think, a dozen different states. And while they made some good hires in Florida, Nevada, and other places, it was a pretty modest effort, ultimately. And both of those places have been successful because they're really targeted at elites, at elites talking to each other, elites covering each other, elites informing for each other, elites uh, advertising to each other, lobbying each other. And you know, I think Axios actually does some tremendous work, but it's not, you know, they've got some local newsletters, if I recall correctly, that that I think are interesting and provide some good roundups and insight into what's happening. But, you know, if you have one or two people in the city of Charlotte, that's not going to replace the Charlotte Observer. Now, I'm perfectly happy with the Charlotte Observer being superseded by something bigger and better that's digital native. But I don't see Axios likely to provide that kind of money, even with the kind of major billionaire and conglomerate backing that it has, investor backing that it has. Politico, similarly, is really focused on the politics rather than the repercussions of life as it's lived. And I think that there's a problem in the sense that the great unbundling that we talk about on cable TV, right? Nobody wants to pay for all 400 channels. They want to pay for the six channels they might watch. And instead, what we're doing is we're paying for a variety of streaming services and figuring out if we can do away with you know, do we still need the local TV stations and the cable news right, stations right. for just when we need it? At the moment, I do, but there may be a, you know, I do for my job. I cover these guys, but there may be a way in which I can cobble things together and pay some less. Well, that comes both with a cost in the sense that not all of these channels will be supportable ultimately, and maybe that's fine. Uh, they get reinvented a fair amount. But similarly, when we unbundled general news from the hard news sections, we found out that we were actually paying, a lot of people were paying for the classified ads which you no longer really have to rely on newspapers for. We were paying for the car ads, which we really don't need to have anymore because you've got cars.com. You were paying for sports highlights, but you can get that a lot quicker from ESPN and nowadays from Twitter. You're paying, you know, you're paying for a lot of things that aren't the uh, warp and woof 
of accountability journalism and of just community journalism, explaining how people live their lives and who they are and giving us insights so that we know more about people across town than somebody from CBS or the Wall Street Journal do, right? And so, you know, I'm in favor, like I'm a big believer in let a thousand flowers bloom. I want all these things to be around. And the newsletters and, you know, major digital startups having more of a local imprint and there being local journalists who are exiles or refugees from newspapers that downsized and, and what have you. I think that's all good. But I don't think people should be blasé about the repercussions of the strangulation of what have been dominant and important sources of news, however flawed they've been. This is going to be a problem for not only the people who are trying to evaluate public officials, but often for public officials themselves as a, a kind of collective history is blurred or erased, uh, as accountability doesn't perform the kind of check on people that in retrospect they might have wished had happened or a check on their political opponents or on institutional actors in the area, corporate figures, uh, labor outfits, whatever that proved to be either corrupt or ineffective. These are all reasons why you want good and dynamic journalism. It helps you see things as they are more likely to actually be, to identify problems, and if it's operating right, to identify possible solutions as well. They're conveners. It's why I think public media and the mission of it is so important, and it's important to take it seriously and not just amount the platitude. So yeah, Alden Global says, look, people have not found what, if newspapers were really profitable and viable, then we wouldn't have an opportunity to swoop in and buy these things. We're only buying these things because nobody else wants them. But that's not quite right. It's that they have managed to uh, degrade the possibility of a lot of these things and taken advantage of previous incompetent leadership and ownership, previously avaricious and greedy ownership, uh, previously arrogant, you know, in generations past and complacent ownership. They are benefiting uh, from a, a series of sort of multiple cataclysms that have affected the daily journalism business uh, and are not replacing well, it with something constructive. They're well, let me, let me, let me point case. out, let me point out in kind of the, the minute or so we have left with you, for whatever it's worth, uh, Lee Enterprises is currently trading well north of that, you want to call it a hostile bid from the autumn by Alden Global of $24 a share. It's now closer to $38 a share. And I wonder, I don't know what you're hearing from your sources, if the market's telling us that there is indeed a better way than taking that kind of uh, lowball, uh, hostile offer from a hedge fund. Well, listen, and Lee has a history of really cutting and not just lightly trimming, but deeply cutting back its newsrooms too, but nothing to the extent of what Alden has done. And it does have a more newspaper uh, history. It, it's not just a hedge fund looking for some area in which to invest. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, if you don't trust Alden to own those newspapers. It's a good sign for that share value to have grown so much. But I would also point out that the actual dollar figures are relatively low enough. I mean, some of these chains are being bandied about for sale for numbers that are the equivalent of what a single newspaper might have gone for in the right, earlier right. era. That for Alden to increase its price 10, 20, 30, 40 percent doesn't really cost it that much money. You know, it's it's in some ways doable, assuming that its other bets have paid off. One of the secrets of Alden is that, you know, it has at times used its cuts uh, in the newspaper realm not to ensure the profitability of newspapers, but to make up for grievous investments in other areas, not in the newspaper world, that didn't play out. David Folkenflick, media correspondent at NPR. You know you are always welcome on this show. Love having you on. Thank you, my friend. Great to connect. Uh, be well. Stay safe. 
Full disclosure, special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly and Radio IQ across the great state of Virginia. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, NPR.org, and Apple Podcasts, of course, at link fulldradio.com. Holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>